This is Mass Timber Today, and I'm Ann Coven. This podcast explores the opportunities and challenges of mass timber with experts in the design, building, and forestry sectors to shed light on the question, what is the future of mass timber construction? In this episode, I have a conversation with Jean-Marc Dubois, the Director of Business Development at Nordic in the United States. We delve into the significance of a business perspective within the mass timber sector. Jean-Marc shares insights from his unique vantage point at Nordic, shedding light on the company's distinctive stance in the mass timber industry and the demand for value-added products. The discussion spans topics such as innovation in mass timber design and engineering, considerations of sustainability and wood sourcing. Jean-Marc also explores the potential advantages of mass timber for rural and Indigenous communities, examining both the opportunities and challenges in mass timber construction, particularly its viability for mid-rise housing. I trust you'll find this episode insightful and enjoyable. Jean-Marc, welcome to the Mass Timber Today podcast. You are very well known in the mass timber sector for your work as Nordic's Director of Business Development. You have a wealth of knowledge about wood markets and advocacy for sustainable mass timber and engineered wood products. Why don't you tell our listeners how you became interested in mass timber and how it became a part of your career? Yeah, it was kind of an evolution for me to get into mass timber. And I think just being at the right place at the right time has kind of been the hallmark of my career. I didn't think so initially. I, I really did not expect to get into the lumber business. It just, I went job hunting to continue my studies and I ended up at a brokerage house uh, in Montreal. And I kept looking for other opportunities, but it was like they say in The Godfather, every time I tried to get out, they dragged me back in. And there's a real family nature to the wood products industry in general. Specifically in Canada, I think it's 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 a relatively small community. It's a big business, but it's a small community. And so I kept getting deeper and deeper into the weeds with mass timber or, or with lumber in general and, and growing my knowledge base. And I got hired by Weyerhaeuser to come and help bring some branches to profitability in Pennsylvania back in the 1980s. We had some pretty hard economic times there and I was dealing with them on a on the sales side and they brought me in, liked what I had to offer. And I just kept, again, growing that knowledge base. As part of that, Weyerhaeuser was getting into uh, glue laminated beams and they actually had an iJoyce manufacturing plant. And so I learned about engineered wood products and that really struck a chord with me and the ability to extract the best and highest use out of a product and advance it beyond the pedestrian lumber products, if you will. And that led me to Shansi Shibogamo when they were getting into their iJoyce business and developing Nordic. So we had Nordic engineered wood products. I started working there and it's a family run business, a very singular vision. And they decided to start making glue lamps, which was, again, a, a pretty much a stretch. You, making glue lamps with tiny black spruce trees is not the most readily apparent solution. But that was really what caused me to really take the big dive into, into mass timber and starting to push for architectural solutions as opposed to just commodity solutions, which had been our main focus of business. And so it became 
kind of my passion to push the envelope at Nordic and help drive the evolution of product there. Good. We will have more conversation about your business background, which I think is extremely important to have that business perspective coming into mass timber design and fabrication. I'm a forester, so I think uh, you'll agree we've always done a very good job in Canada about producing lumber and pulp and paper, but we've been not successful in value-added products. And so this huge potential that we have with engineered wood and man mass timber is really historic when it comes to our inability for 200 years in Canada to do more than produce uh, lumber and, and pulp and paper. So it's a very exciting possibility. And although my, my forestry colleagues, we were always very critical of people in the business world and called you pencil pushers. <laughs> but in fact, <laughs> I think in this case, <laughs> and then because as you know, there's quite a, a forestry ethos among foresters and people who work in the woods. But in this case, I think uh, your pencil pushing is extremely important in launching uh, this uh, uh, incredibly important nascent industry in Canada, but a very important. I, I'd rather be a pencil pusher than be accused of being an order taker. So, <laughs> and I've had plenty of that in my career. <laughs> I I agree. As and you know, is... people in the lumber business, right? The commodity lumber business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think so. that's that's what I admire so much about Nordic is. And I, as I said, I had visited your head office in Montreal, which is incredibly impressive, and and really had a, a sense that it is very entrepreneurial. It hasn't been in its development, and I would like you to sort of explain how Nordic developed. It, it isn't typical to our industry. It has been very innovative, and it's been slow building, and it's taken a lot of investment and strategic commitment to get you to where you are today. And again, being a privately owned business gives you a lot of freedom in some ways, rather than being a public company, but it obviously has drawbacks when it comes to the investment you need to really grow what's becoming a major export business also. We can delve into all those issues, but what, when is it about mass timber that you find the most compelling? Oh, um, well, I grew up when we still had real winters and the summers were hot and the demarcation of the change of seasons was very clear. And I'd, I've had my ear to the ground on climate change for a long time. And as a father, I didn't feel comfortable just going through the motions and being part of the status quo and selling product and saying my job is my job. I realized after doing some research that there are ways to draw down carbon and it is imperative that we do that. And that if the one thing I could do was to reduce the amount of carbon that's going up in structures by promoting mass timber and working on biogenic carbon encapsulation and kind of changing the narrative a little bit that I wanted to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And this was, well, first of all, from a technical standpoint, I love a challenge. I love learning new things and growing from conventional lumber to eye joists and glue lamps and doing residential structures to moving into bigger structures and encapsulating carbon at scale to me was, was a real motivator. 
And so it wasn't a position that existed at Nordic. I, I basically forced myself on the team. I went out while I was doing my day job. I was doing research on the side and I was going to Greenfield events and mass timber events and going and talking to architects and engineers and presenting it at conferences about that. And then I started actually getting involved in selling projects independently of the business that we had established. I was out there kind of on my own as a free agent. And it was after I got to the point where we were ready to close a big deal and it was causing a little bit of a kerfuffle at the head office because I didn't work with their methodology that I was brought in as a full-fledged member. So, you know, kind of a force of will thing. But again, one of the benefits of working for a privately held company, as you mentioned, is you don't necessarily have rigid lines and hard rules and job descriptions. You flow to your strength and the company realizes that and recognizes that. And they basically created the position for me to do this. So it was, it was really a collective effort on both our parts. I had the knowledge of the company and I had the ability to speak on their behalf and I had proven myself on the sales side. So they knew I wasn't going to be liberal with company funds. You know, I was going to promote the value and I was going to extract value for the mill as well as, as for the client. So it ended up being a, just a really good move. I mean, it's been probably the most fun I've had working with a group of people in, I can't say how long. I mean, it's, it's really a joy to, to be working with people that are professional and driven and have the same kind of philosophy and, and sense of mission. Also, can we talk about what you're doing now with Mass Timber and the Mass Timber projects you're involved with? And I think back to visiting your office and I think of how impressive it was to see a room full of designers and engineers yeah. and have conversations about sort of your structural core and shell solutions and how you had this turnkey operation then and probably growing more now where you could put all the parts of a mass timber structure that the client needed on a flatbed truck and drive it to yeah. the construction site mm -hmm. or by train. I know that you do that also. And so that was very intriguing. Yeah. I think the evolution of our business, it kind of mirrors my evolution from within the industry, right? It's kind of like a microcosm. And uh, I just want to take a step back for a second because mass timber isn't necessarily cross-laminated timber. Cross-laminated timber is a component that is defined as mass timber, but glue lamb is, glue lamb deck is, nail lamb, et cetera. So when we actually got involved in mass timber, we were doing large sports facilities and large industrial projects using glue laminated beams. And again, kind of counterintuitive to what is possible with the small black spruce trees that you're very well aware of uh, as a forester. But when we decided to get into uh, making cross-laminated timber, it was really a step into the void. We had looked at what was happening in Europe. We had an architect in our office in Montreal that was from France. He, he came from a large manufacturer family. He was exposed to big beams and big wood and just a really great visionary for doing structures. And so we were doing soccer arenas, hockey arenas and industrial structures, including expansions at our plant. So we were proving out the concept by ourselves, and we decided to get into cross-laminated timber. 
And I was looking at it because I hadn't really seen it directly. And I didn't feel like it really suited North America very well because it wasn't, you know, lean and, and low cost. It was going to be something that really required some level of comprehension and refinement and what are the values that that brings. And so we built the plant in 2010, 2011 and sat with no orders. And you got an investment in some capacity and you've got people and you want to make a return on that investment. And so no one really in North America was familiar with what cross-laminated timber could do. So we ended up having to become our own development company. So we built the first multi-res project in North America in Shibugamo, which is not a hotbed for multi-res. We built um, a 24-unit, four-story condo project in Shibugamo, and it served as a kind of a test case for FP innovations. They came in and were doing structural and vibrational and, and sound analyses on that. But the proof of concept came when we built over the course of 22 days in the dead of winter, which you know is very cold in Shibugamo. It's about 40 below. Five guys in a crane put together this 20 four-unit condo project in 22 days. And so at that point, we kind of became a development company. We became our own GC. We became our own erector. And it was the nascence, if you will, of the vision that Nordic is today. And so we found out very early on that if we're going to be promoting a product, we have to be able to offer a service that's beyond the tradition, right? It's not just selling units of two by four to a lumber yard and having someone come in and do it. And it's not just selling glue lamps and delivering that. Conceptually, we had to be involved. We had to be involved logistically and we had to be involved from a structural standpoint as well as erection. So all of those factors became really critical targets and critical benchmarks for us to evolve as a, as a company. And, and it has been our raison d'être, if you will. It's what makes Nordic. There's not a lot of manufacturers that get involved to the level of detail that we do. And it's the reason why we have those 75 people in Montreal working on projects, right? We have distinct project teams, project managers, engineers, technicians, architects, and we consult with clients. We consult with the GCs that are delivering on the client's vision all the way up through turnkey. At one point, that caused us to step in and purchase and move the steel fabricator that was making our connectors to our plant in Shibugamo. And at that point, we were able to come in with a, a fully cooked solution, as you mentioned, put it on a truck or put it on a rail car and get it to destination. When I started in the business, my, my first job was logistics. It took me quite a while before the company that I worked for allowed me to actually sell, talk to customers and actually sell. So I had to learn from the ground up, but that base in logistics really helped inform a lot of what distinguishes our approach to markets and how we were able to be the first manufacturer to ship product by rail from Quebec to California and be more fossil fuel friendly in terms of impact, carbon impact on a project than manufacturers that would have been closer but had to go by a truck. So there's there's some really neat nuances to our business that we are able to inform and bring these types of solutions to the table. Well, it's unique. I think we can all agree 
when it comes to spectacular vertical integration, your company has no other competitor from growing the trees, <laughs> producing the lumber, fabricating, designing the product, delivering it. I don't know of any other company in the mass timber sector that comes anywhere near that kind of integrated operation. So it's certainly impressive. So talking about innovation, which I think is certainly a hallmark of Nordic, what are some of the most compelling mass timber innovations you're seeing today in design and engineering of mass timber, both within Nordic or maybe some other examples you see? Uh, that's a good question. I think the idea of mass timber and the evolution of mass timber by and large opens avenues for experimentation. And I, I see a lot of interesting concepts maybe that are based on preconceptions or misconceptions about what a product can and cannot do. And so I may not be answering the question that you, that you asked, but I'm going to hopefully be able to bring it back. What I do find is difficult about mass timber right now is the fact that it tends to get square pegged. People may misconstrue its strengths, its suitable applications, and by that they can square peg and use the product in a fashion that it might meet the need, but it doesn't necessarily promote the best value. And I think that's something that because it's still a relatively new product, we haven't really found out what it can and cannot do. I look at caissons, for instance, where you're, you're making like a CLT sandwich to deliver floor cassettes. That can be very good at scale. The unfortunate thing is that it creates logistics issues and shipping air on a truck is never good. So some of the solutions that may be viable at face value do not necessarily turn into truly viable solutions. Or if they are viable economically, they may have a deleterious effect on carbon and things of that nature. So that's one of the things I think we're still trying to find the sweet spot for mass timber. Mm -hmm. To me, it exists already. We push the envelope and it is, you never, you never get anywhere appropriate by just doing status quo, right? Finding out what you can do and pushing the envelope, I think is always good. But I think there's definitely a need and a path for, you know, appropriate use in an appropriate sector that mass timber can respond to. And I think right now that the dynamics of the market are not in lockstep with what the capacity and the benefits of mass timber are. Mm -hmm. From that aspect, I think there's development that needs to be done and maybe a realization that we need projects that push the envelope, but we need to make use of the product for where its sweet spot is. And finding that out, I think, is kind of critical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we may want to, we may want to, we may want to edit that answer because I don't think I answered your question, and and I apologize for that. No, I so. think you were you were absolutely addressing that question, and and it really comes down to the practical and the achievable, but also the constant innovation and matching the mass timber with what will be a successful project. We, we're having a an event soon that is being sponsored by Woodworks and Alice Dawn and Dialogue. And it's about hybrid 
mass timber, the low carbon long spans, which touches on a topic you raised. Right. So I think that sense of, of a practical and sensible way of building hybrid structures, of putting the best resources to the best use in a building and designing it from the beginning mm -hmm. is really critical to any of this innovation. Yeah, I think that ideally it's always wonderful to push the envelope again. And like I said, you don't move the needle by sitting at your desk doing status quo. Kennedy pushed us to the moon, right? 1960. In 10 years, we're going to get to the moon. And, and this isn't a moonshot, but it could be. I mean, there, there's a real need for us to draw carbon down. And back then, I think it was easier to, to achieve consensus. And now, every time you talk about climate change, you got deniers, you got, you know, I mean, it becomes so polarizing that it's difficult to really get a good dialogue going. And so pushing the envelope I think is, is great, but again, if it pushes the product into an area where it's not necessarily its best use, then have we really achieved something? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, technically it's great. You know, can we do this is always a great question, but I think it should be followed by, should we do this, right? What are we promoting, right? And what is the net goal? I don't know that we need to push wood to 40 or 50 foot spans, right? Maybe we need to rethink what we're doing. Again, it becomes a question of responding to the economic demands. And if those solutions are always driven to that end, of course, you're going to find a way to do it. But if it means taking the carbon value of wood and compromising it, I really don't know that that's the best place for mass timber. I think there's tremendous opportunities in mid-rise, in densification of cities, I find myself reading more and more about, you know, walkable communities. I'm a big fan of Lloyd Alter, colleague of yours. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know Lloyd. Mm -hmm. And his penchant for speaking truth about what we need to do. We're not all going to ride e-bikes to work. That's, that's not going to happen. It would be great if we could. But we do have the ability to fill a tremendous need within the building community without necessarily having to push the envelope to the extent that we do. Because when you build a boutique project, that's great. But the promise of mass timber is also its replication and its ability to standardize construction, right? Yes. I think that's one of the big benefits that everyone's looking to. And when you create a boutique project, well, you push the idea of uniqueness and not necessarily the benefits of of an extractive process. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly think we've talked our way into sustainability. And when I have conversations, as I do with many, many architects and designers, mm -hmm. they want to know if the wood they're using in their project comes from a sustainable source before we even get into the discussion about embodied carbon and the impacts on climate change. Although I think we're all in agreement that wood is as a part of a solution of an approach to climate change. But when you're asked that question, Jean-Marc, so you're making a great product. Mm -hmm. How do you know the wood that goes into your product is sustainable? It's a great question. I know it's sustainable because I work at Nordic. <laughs> and I'm not making light of the situation. Uh, there's, there's a reason I'm here. Um, first of all, I think it's really important for people to understand that Wood is not wood, right? And as a forester, you know that, right? 
there's a huge difference between the temperate rainforests of the West Coast and the boreal forests across the northern swath of Canada and the southern pine forests and, and the pine barren forests of the mid-Atlantic. So just that, I think people tend to conflate wood and forestry with deforestation, and they tend to conflate wood with just this generic picture of all trees are equal and all things, you know, every time you cut down a tree that, you know, there's a spotted owl that's crying somewhere. And I, you know, I grew up in the industry during the time when people were tying themselves to trees and, and spiking trees and it was difficult. But the fact is the Canadian boreal forest is probably 93% virgin. It's probably the largest carbon sink in, in the world untouched. And it has a very specific cycle, a life cycle. Those trees mature at about 80 years. They're dead and falling over at 120. They grow in peat bogs. They grow small and tall, and, and that's it. The West Coast species can last for 500,000 years, depending on which species you're talking about. So we're talking a rotational crop in one area of the country, and we're talking about something that is more of a legacy-type tree. And the utilization of boreal forest and the SPF that is grown in that boreal forest across Canada, by and large, necessitates that it be sustainable. By rights, very, very militant in the forestry practices. They mandate that we only impact a certain percentage over time. We have to guarantee that there's going to be more growth within the forest after we leave an area than what there was when we were there. We do that by reforestation. Nordic has taken the additional steps of getting FSC certification. So it's not just a sustainable forestry practice, but it's also an economic and a social mandate as well, where we're tied to the community. And so it's a, there's a benefactor relationship where we're, we're engaged with the communities at large. And so over the course of my career at Nordic, we've grown from one sawmill to five sawmills that are producing close to a billion board feet of lumber annually in a craft plant that generates 16 gig of, of energy back into the, uh, into the grid. And we're now a 15 million acre sustainable forestry manager, as well as an operator of, of sawmills and manufacturer of mass timber. So we have pushed beyond just the mandates of the community and, and the government and we've gotten international certification as well. So I can speak very comfortably that when you're buying product from Nordic, it is sustainable. I mean, there are portions of the territory that we harvest along with others that because of the nature of their relationship with that, that is not FSC certified, but is still sustainably certified, perhaps through other agencies. But we maintain that same approach with all the forestry operations that we do, whether or not it is FSC certified. Yes, thank you, Jean-Marc. When you talk about a topic that excites many of us when it comes to mass timber, also is the potential economic benefits for rural communities and regional economies and indigenous communities, which is something that is not often considered by people living in cities in Canada and the United States, certainly there are important, as you pointed out, important benefits in the supply chain of mass timber from the forest to your final products. 
what is your take on this about the potential economic benefits for these communities that are often left left out of economic development? Uh, I think we've become more sensitized to it. And, you know, as the community at large has identified that ESG, you know, environmental and social governance is a goal or a want from the larger community, it's, it's become part of the dialogue. We had been exposed to more of the Indigenous impact when they had the Pédé Brave in, in Quebec, where the government negotiated a treaty with the Indigenous people to basically hand back the land that had been taken from them. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of a, a quid pro quo. They wanted to build their hydro projects, so we'll give you back the forests. So, you know, on their side, perhaps maybe a little bit duplicitous. I don't want to get into that politics, but the fact is that it changed from being a mandated governmental approach to us actually engaging with the community. And so because we were in the, you know, the James Bay region, we're working with the indigenous population, the Cree community by and large felt like we were impinging on their territory. And so there can be some bad feelings we have been supportive of the community. We've tried to engage with them on an ongoing basis and, you know, help them both economically and technologically to the point where the tribal elders actually started approaching us and saying, we want to do something within our community to become autonomous. We don't want to be just living off the dole. And so we started working with them to actually bring a sawmill back that was going to be in their community. And last April, we actually had a ribbon cutting ceremony where we opened Cree Lumber. And it's run and managed by the indigenous population. Nordic is helping them with the final finishing of that and the marketing of that, but it's identified independently. So in the near future, you're going to see paper wrap lumber coming out of northern Quebec with Cree Lumber on it. And I think that's really a success story for, for us and, and the community and the, and the level of engagement that can be had. It's something that I think points the way to kind of a, a united approach and the willingness to work across economic barriers, social barriers, uh, cultural barriers, and the level of engagement that that shows, I think, is really promising for the future. Thank you, John Mark. I couldn't agree more, and I see that happening elsewhere in Canada as well. What are some of the interesting things that you've seen that can be done with mass timber that maybe adds value to steel and concrete, or maybe can't really be done solely by steel and concrete? Well, we've seen some projects where you can possibly do it with steel and concrete, but if you integrate wood, and you talked about hybrid projects before, we have found a way to, to play nice with the other building materials, pushing the envelope on mass timber and getting long span product. You can't always architecturally or structurally just provide arches where you're going to get the strength from the product and integrating maybe steel intention with wood and compression tends to be one area where I think there's, there's a lot of promise and it allows you to utilize the product to its best use and integrate with others. So again, the square peg that I mentioned earlier, trying to square peg something and, and just throw wood at a solution may make elements so massive that they're not really viable, either economically or logistically. And so the ability to get that to work together, I think, is kind of neat. 
And it's one of the areas where Nordic started making a difference before we had cross-laminated timber. We were doing that. I think now the ability to take cross-laminated timber panels and do extended spans by using uh, queen post trusses and, and tension and making large span elements, that to me is just phenomenal. You know, uh, long span roofs. We have a couple of airport projects in northern Quebec that speak to that one in Chibougamo, one in Rouen-Aranda, and it looks gorgeous and it gives you a lot of light and it's still a relatively you know, efficient, it's, it's very efficient structurally, but architecturally it's also compelling. And I think that's really cool. So we tend to be seeing more of that. I think in concrete, we have one project that we engaged in recently at Limperlost, you know, the project at George Brown, which you've, you've no doubt seen going up. Yes. Fantastic project on the on the waterfront in Toronto. It is, it is. And and honestly, I think that the team at Moriyama Tashima has done a phenomenal job and really created probably the most iconic project that I know of in terms of its overall use, you know, creating a solar chimney using wood and integrating concrete to get long span with thin floor plates, I think is is really amazing. So that provided some logistics and developmental challenges, but it also pushed some some new solutions that we were able to bring along with the GC and the and the engineers. So really nice collaboration there. And I think that's if there's anything I, I think that speaks to the potential for mass timber, it's it's the level of collaboration and open mindedness that we see within the design community. Not everyone has the answer. And the experience of one can definitely inform the solution of another. And we see that being utilized quite a bit. So that to me is is really promising. Excellent. So you've talked about certainly one example for important opportunities for mass timber and design in the future, and that is mid-rise housing. And I had noticed also that you've been talking about affordable housing for middle-income earners, which I think is, again, something that points to your company's community-mindedness and that sense of what kind of construction is important and needed today and is a fit for mass timber. Maybe you want to talk about that for a bit and if there are any other important opportunities you see as a niche for mass timber. Well, uh, I I think from a community standpoint, there's definitely a need for workforce housing. It's been identified for a long time that the service community is finding it more and more difficult to live in the communities that they're engaged in. And so the whole idea of getting people to live in the community that they work in and be able to use either mass transit or be in a walkable community, ideally, would be wonderful. And we don't see that. They can't afford to live in the markets that they work in. So we commute an hour, an hour and a half to and from work. We're just adding more petrochemical pollution to the air to get to our work. And then dealing with the stress of having to live that commute on a daily basis. And I think ideally we'd like to see people be able to afford more than just a a shoebox if they are going to live in that. And that's what we see from the development community is they just make the same apartment rental 
but you get less and less square footage. So, you know, eventually you end up living in a closet. That's not good. That's, that's stressful. So democratization of housing, I think, is really important. Walkable communities, being able to live and work and eat in a community that you want to engage in, I think, is really important. And Mass Timber offers that potential. Six-story mid-rise, you don't need to push the envelope that much. And if you look in major metro areas, I take New York City as boroughs. Of those million buildings, only 17,000 are taller than six stories. So I don't know that we necessarily have to push the envelope to 18, 20 stories in order to get that. And densification of housing in what has been called the Goldilocks zone, where you can get the maximum amount of people living in a community and get a sense of community, tends to be in those types of buildings. You know, It's going to be in the mid-rise. It's not going to be in the high-rise. And they tend to also be more energy efficient. So we have the ability to make use of the space and densify the urban uh, area, but also uh, driving a community benefit in terms of livable and affordable housing. And Mass Timber, I think, responds well to that. I, th I think that is a, a remarkable potential that we all want to see landed. Absolutely. <laughs> sooner rather than later. Yep. And on the flip side of the coin, what are the most important challenges you see with mass timber today? I don't think the industry has done a great service. And when I say the industry, I'm, I'm talking to the, the larger industry. People are promoting mass timber as a solution, and I think that's great. But technology is not the answer, right? I think we need to address all the different buckets that make up the equation. Ultimately, any construction is going to be subject to the realities of the economy. And I keep hearing the industry decrying, and, and the industry, I'm talking about architects, engineers, developers, people within the community that are promoting the construction of projects that they can't get mass timber when they need it. And there's not enough production. So we need to add more mass timber manufacturers. And unfortunately, in North America, we've actually had a couple of pretty severe failures by people who thought that they were going to respond to that need and didn't necessarily have a well thought out process, thinking that you could just throw technology at the problem and it would, it would solve itself. And that's not the case. The reality is that currently we have excess capacity that's not being used. And it's not because the people can't make the product. It's because the projects tend to slip you design and you plan for fabrication and manufacturing. And when it comes time to deliver, there's roadblocks. Maybe it didn't get permitted. Maybe the funding wasn't available. Whatever the reasons are, the anticipated time frame for the flow of product from concept to destination is never uninterrupted. And there's a finite capacity for production. So when you miss that production window, you can't recreate it. If you run a restaurant and people don't come to eat today, they're not going to come and eat twice tomorrow to make up your shortfall. And it's the same thing with mass timber. You're not making a commodity product. Everything is custom. So when you do that, we need follow through from the industry. I mean, people can point at the mass timber manufacturers and say, you're not doing your job, but ultimately we're fucked. I mean, the problem exists outside it. We're dealing with it. And honestly, we would love to push production 
way more than we are. To be totally transparent, we have not filled our plant with full shift capacity, even though we're 15 years into our process. And we're probably doing more projects than most. So I can imagine a, a company that's just getting started and has to get a, you know, it's amortizing its equipment and they're struggling to get orders. It's not easy, but this is the reality of the construction industry. It's not the mass timber industry. And that's where the rubber isn't meeting the road right now. And so the challenge for me is not with mass timber. It's getting the industry to actually commit, engage, and live up to the commitment, right? People are talking the talk, but when it comes time to get the contract and actually execute and deliver on the contract, it's not always there. And I can't remember a project where we've delivered on the schedule that was put in front of us when we bid it. So I can't be the only one. And when you see this and you realize everyone's dealing with the same reality, how can you promote other people getting in and doing the same thing? And we're vertically integrated, right? So I've got a day job. I'm producing product and generating cash flow so I can survive. I can't imagine what it's like for someone who's just fabricating. It's, you're living on pins and needles all the time, right? So to me, that's really the challenge that I see is getting the industry and the manufacturing side of things in lockstep. That's something that I think the government would like to help promote by making avenues for this to happen. But adding more production capacity, that's like adding extra lanes on the highway. You're just going to get more traffic. You're not going to get more efficient. You're not going to get people home faster. No, I think you have the voice of common sense. And certainly we think of examples such as Sidewalk Labs and Walmart and some of the big projects that couldn't work out. And then the many smaller ones, as you say, that are part of an industry that would like to always have on-time delivery and so forth, but it doesn't seem to work out that way. Well, I mean, the reality is that you're always going to have interruptions, right? And the ability to deal with those interruptions is one thing, but you don't want to get to the point where you're not able to live up to those commitments because in order to meet your product flow, you have to overcommit. Overbooking, you know, we're not loading planes. Right? We're trying to get projects built and, and deliver successes. We're not responsible for the schedule and we're victims of the schedule many, many times. So you, you can't make the product and just sit on it right? because that creates a whole other series of issues. So the promise of mass timber is the ability to get it made and delivered to a job site and erected quickly. That should all flow from a schedule that's realistic and there's so many impacting factors there that it makes it difficult. It's one of the struggles that I see, especially from having done commodities for a long time where you just ship a truck when you got the truck. It's not a big deal. I got a crane appointment. I got to get my material to that job site. And oops, guess what? The crane's not operating today. My truck's sitting there. Who's paying that cost, right? Yeah. So a very, a very solid example. I'm I know of many in the construction industry who would sympathize and empathize with you Yeah, yeah. on, on all of this. Jean-Marc, I always ask, as we come to the conclusion of our interview, what are three articles or websites or books that you would recommend to listeners by way of some of the topics you've talked about today or some of your interests associated with Mass Timber? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. I find myself 
you know, people ask me what motivates me about mass timber. I think one of the key statements that always comes to mind for me is what I like about wood and what I like about mass timber. And, and it comes back to the carbon. But there's something, this is going to sound totally off the wall. One of the key things that motivates me is Richard Feynman. I don't know if you, mm-hmm. you remember Richard Feynman, the, the, the nuclear physicist, physicist. Yes. Professor yes. at Cal Poly. He had fireside chats. And Richard has this one where he talks about where trees come from. And that is something that never leaves my mind, where trees come from and how do trees get so smart that they could take carbon dioxide out of the air and bring it into their system and turn it into cellulose and pop oxygen back up. And if there's anything that speaks to me, it's Richard Feynman talking about trees and and what they do and how they do it. So that's one, where trees come from. Um... I've been fortunate in my career to be exposed to some visionary architects, designers, engineers, and one that I hold in high regard is Alan Organsky. He's a professor at Yale. Uh, He has a studio in New Haven. He's been working with the New Haven government to try and get affordable housing going in that community. And Alan has a presentation that he's done called The Carbon Positive City. And that speaks to a lot of the things that I, I alluded to in our questions about densification and proper utilization of resources and how to make the best use of the fiber and encapsulating carbon. So that's, that's another one. And then beyond that, again, outside the spectrum of mass timber in particular, but I think associated with it, and again, with regards to the community, there's a really good thinker, a uh, young man, Michael Eliasson, out on the West Coast at Larch Studios that is promoting some really interesting concepts with regards to single access buildings. And that it's something that he learned working in Germany and working on Passive House. And he's a big proponent of mass timber. He's a big proponent of Passive, but he's also a big proponent of proper community set up. And by, you know, I'm going to put a slash there and talk about Lloyd Alter also, because I'm a huge fan of his, uh, have been for a long time. So Michael Eliasson at Large Studios, I would definitely recommend that people check him out. So the first one, Richard Feynman, that's a guilty pleasure for me. I just, I just love Richard Feynman's brain, the way he thinks, uh, just, you know, a genius that uh, we lost way too early. And I think he'd have a lot to teach us today if he was still around. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. As an aside, I interviewed Alan. I know Alan also and am a fan of his. Alan Organchian interviewed him earlier in this series. So Great. Yes. So finally, Jean-Marc, what advice would you offer to listeners and designers, architects, engineers, developers, what would you offer to them about how they could shift into using mass timber on their building projects? You've spoken about a few cautionary decision-making points when considering the potential for using mass timber. And so what advice would you offer our listeners? Well, the first thing I would offer is don't approach mass timber thinking that if you have a steel or a concrete structure that it's automatically going to translate. 
or that it's going to necessarily be more or less expensive to use that. I think you need, well, so I branch off again, using the product within its most viable form, I think is critical. When you start pushing beyond the natural tendency for mass timber to be effective, and I'm talking beams and columns as well as uh, cross-laminated timber, you tend to get expensive very quickly. You tend to handcuff yourself and then you start making decisions that are impactful downstream. But if you use the product within its sweet spot, whether it's in terms of you know six-story mid-rise, 20-foot clear span, for instance, kind of a, an outer limit for residential construction, working within that kind of parameter, I think is great. On a commercial side, if you're working within 30 feet, that's great. Doesn't mean that you can't push beyond that, but if you have a grid axis that you're working at least in one orientation that you're keeping it within 30 feet, I think that's good. The other thing is making sure that you engage early with the manufacturer of choice or at least vet the process with a couple of manufacturers to make sure that, A, they're going to be able to meet the uh, schedule and the logistics requirements of the job. Having a level of comfort with that, I think, can avoid a lot of missteps in the future. Additionally, avoid putting mass timber elements in exposed to the weather applications where they're not ideally suited. I applaud the idea of putting wood wherever possible, but I find a lot of wood going from the climate-controlled interior of the building, going through a wall and exposed to the outside. That's an area that's fraught with peril and... <laughs> I would suggest that people, you know, consider that having an exposed element doesn't necessarily make it environmentally friendly or sustainable. Using the product in its right place has all that merit. Yes, it's good to look at, but maybe you want to consider an architectural solution as opposed to, you know, mass timber as a structural solution for that. You know, if you're affecting the durability of a product and the look and the performance of a project over time, by misusing the product, it's not necessarily to the good of the project or the client. So those are a couple of cautionary tales that I would have. There's one area that we haven't touched on that I think I'd like to, to bring forward. Please. And I apologize if I'm using up way more time than I should. No, please go ahead. One area that's exceedingly appealing to me is the idea of design for deconstruction. That's an area where I think mass timber has so much promise where other building materials really, really cannot address that. And it's an area that I think is going to be a challenge for us, but also a tremendous opportunity. The way we design products and projects, it's ideally suited to, to make it available for deconstruction at the end of its uh, usable life. And I think one of the challenges that we have is we are maintaining convention with our structural approach to mass timber that doesn't necessarily align with that. So I think it's an area of tremendous promise. And I think it's also an area where it could open up peripheral opportunities within the industry for solutions other than some of the current status quo solutions, like adding concrete to get mass. And the main area where I see that really bringing benefit is in the multi-res application. I think if we use non-cementitious and dry type mass solutions, we can really impact 
designed for deconstruction and the reutilization of these products multiple times over over multiple lifetimes and different products and different projects. So I think that's one area that mass timber is, we're not even touching on that right now. I think the idea is there. Conceptually, I think it's a great opportunity and it's one area that I've tried to drive a little bit of focus and dialogue with architects and the enthusiasm's there. So there's definitely a need for that. And if we're just talking about resource utilization and proper use of, of what we have, giving mass timber multiple lifetimes within the construction industry and, and multiple applications, I think is great. Can probably extend the life of, of products for a couple of hundred, 300, 400 years if you, if you use it properly. So, Thank you, Jean-Marc. That's an extremely important comment and certainly one that's being actively debated within the design architecture engineering communities. Yep. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for your insightful and thoughtful remarks. And there will be a very large audience waiting to hear what you have to say, representing as you do one of Canada's hallmark mass timber firms. You certainly set the gold standard. So we really appreciate your advice and your insight. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ann. It was a real pleasure. It was nice chatting with you. The Mass Timber Today podcast is produced by the Mass Timber Institute at the University of Toronto's John H. Daniels Faculty of Landscape, Architecture and Design and explores the opportunities and challenges of mass timber with experts in the design, building and forestry sectors to shed light on the question, what is the future of mass timber construction? You can find the show notes and any references mentioned in this podcast on our website at masstimberinstitute.ca, where you can also view our current projects and subscribe to our newsletter. This episode was edited by Derek Wellsman and produced by Sean Shukla at the Mass Timber Institute. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Dialogue's Toronto Studio for their generous sponsorship of this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the Apple iTunes ranking site. We'd also love to hear from you with any suggestions for other people you would like us to interview. You can reach us on our website. 